Welcome to the Human Rights Podcast from the Irish Centre for Human Rights in the National University of Ireland, Galway. This podcast is a new initiative and this one is a pilot. We're here in the School of Journalism's recording studio. Thank you so much to Professor Tom Fell for helping us learn the technical ropes. My name is Dr. Maeve O'Rourke. I'm a lecturer in the Irish Centre for Human Rights, and we have some of our PhD scholars here this morning as well. This podcast is going to be a joint production by staff and students of the Centre for Human Rights. The purpose of the podcast is to bring some of the ideas, the reflections on current issues and the debates that go on in the Irish Centre for Human Rights to a far broader audience. We're extremely fortunate in the guests that visit us throughout the year. They're world-leading practitioners, academics and policymakers, all with their own fascinating insights on current events and issues. In addition, there are eight academic staff in the Irish Centre for Human Rights and many more working on human rights law issues in the School of Law and in the Centre for Disability Law and Policy at NUI Galway. And we want this podcast to be a way of introducing you to them too. Our guest today on this very special pilot podcast is Professor Donica O'Connell. Donica's here to talk about policing in Ireland. Specifically, we're going to discuss what progress has been made towards a human rights-based overhaul of how Angartha Siakona does its job. Donica O'Connell is an established professor of law at NUI Galway. He's former head of school of law here, and he's currently a commissioner of Ireland's Law Reform Commission. There are many other roles that he's held or continues to hold, but it's impossible to catalogue all of his contributions to human rights here. It's crucial to say for the purpose of our discussion today that Dunica was recently a member of the Commission on the Future of Policing in Ireland. So he has a great deal of experience in the topic that we want to explore today. The Commission on the Future of Policing issued a groundbreaking report proposing sweeping reforms to how policing is done in Ireland in September 2018, the 18th of September to be precise. So actually, it's a year now since that report was published. And in April of this year, Dunica convened a very well attended conference here at NUI Galway on policing human rights and communities. The videos of all the panels from that conference are on the NUI Galway School of Law YouTube channel, and they include sign language. The School of Law and the Irish Centre for Human Rights, who co-organised the conference, are very grateful to have had the additional support of the government in putting the conference together. Dunica, thank you so much for joining us on this pilot episode of the Human Rights Podcast. It's a privilege. I actually want to start this discussion of human rights based policing, Donica, by asking you a bit more about your background. I understand that you took a leave of absence in 1999 from teaching in NUI Galway to act as the first full time director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Is this where your interest in policing came from or had you always seen policing as a general issue of human rights concern? Well, I've never had an academic interest in policing. I've never worked in that field, um, but I was, I mean, my my time in ICCL from 1999 to 2002 clearly was a very you know important time for policing in Ireland. Uh, the McBrearty story in Donegal, the the tragedy in Abilara, all happened at that time. So they were issues on which the ICCL had views and on which we worked. And to that extent, I suppose I developed an interest or a knowledge in policing from that that particular uh, point in time and that you know has stayed has stayed with me since i maintained an interest particularly in the abilara case after i left iccl because i was you know friendly with the carthy family in abilara and was very interested 
in the proceedings of the Bar Tribunal and commented extensively on that uh, when it was published many years later. So yeah, it was it was I suppose a formative uh, experience. I think for a lot of people, I suppose the scandals in relation to policing Ireland all kind of seem to be a bit of a morass and it'd be useful I think just to give us your summation of the reasons why the Commission on the Future of Policing was established when it was and kind of what had led up to that and whether there were patterns from your time in the ICCL right up until the Commission was established. Well, I mean, one of the reasons the ICCL came into existence in the 1970s was because of policing uh, scandals at the time, the so-called heavy gang and and, and issues, uh, you know, to do with that. And I suppose there had always been a certain, within the political system, a certain forgiveness of things that may otherwise have given rise to difficulty for policing because so much was associated with dealing with terrorism on the island of Ireland. And, you know, to that extent, there was a degree... There was a degree of excuse making, but also, you know, to be fair, um, that did pose a very significant challenge to an unarmed police service. And the Gardaí deserve quite a degree of credit for the degree, you know, for the way in which that was managed, even if there were. And there were very significant human rights issues arising therefrom. So that is, in a sense, part of the backdrop. And then you move into the kind of more recent times where you had what are just simply scandals in places like Donegal and, and the reaction to the incident in Abilara, the tragic incident in Abilara, gave rise to huge questions um, leading to a parliamentary inquiry, leading to a tribunal of inquiry and other and other matters. So it became, I think, apparent that the usual narrative that there's a few bad apples wasn't in fact true. It never was true, by the way, but, you know, it, it, it became, you know, indisputable that that was no longer the case. And then there was a kind of a succession of other problems. You know, Morris, in fact, documented very clearly a whole range of systemic reforms that needed to be done, and they just simply weren't. And then there were significant legislative intervention in 2005 and later. And, you know, to give credit to those involved in that, but it didn't it didn't go far enough. And then there was the whole Morris McCabe and other other controversies leading ultimately to the Disclosures Tribunal, but also prior to that commissions of investigation. So there was almost a degree of permanent crisis and permanent controversy surrounding Garda management and their relationship with the Department of Justice and Equality and the political system more generally. And various parliamentary committees were making a very, you know, a lot of noise about that. And it was just one of those issues that simply, you know, didn't go away. So there had been calls for quite some time, in fact, and indeed the ICCL made these calls many years ago for a pattern type review of policing in Ireland, where you would simply look at everything systemically, you know, root and branch, uh, take a radical assessment of policing and the future of policing. And that hadn't actually happened. And then when it was agreed, Francis Fitzgerald was the minister, that this would be done, you know, there was a suspicion that this may in fact just be kicking the can down the road, that we already had reviews done by the inspectorate, we had reviews done by the authority, and indeed Morris and all of these other tribunals. And what was the, you know, what, what, why was there a need for another commission or another review or another report? And I think, you know, the view that was taken at the time was that even though you had all of these separate deep dives in many respects, 
on policing in Ireland that you needed something that looked at everything and that was prospective in its focus, not retrospective, because virtually everything else arose from an examination of some scandal or other or some controversy or other. Whereas our commission, the Commission of the Future of Policing, which was headed by Cathy O'Toole, who had been the first uh, head of the Garda Sheehan Inspectorate and was very experienced in policing, both in Seattle and Boston in the United States. Ours, ours was the first that would take a truly holistic and prospective view of policing and would clearly draw on what had been done previously, most particularly by the inspectorate uh, in recent years. And and that was, you know, that was the backdrop against which it was established. So, yeah, it was it was established in in the middle of ongoing controversy. You remember while our commission was sitting, the Disclosures Tribunal was carrying out its business in Dublin Castle in full public view. So it was considering the future of policing in the context of ongoing controversy. Uh, and even though our report, you know, came out prior to the to the Charlton report, uh, the you know, the, the hearings in Charlton had concluded by the time we we came out. So there was there was a lot happening in that space and there was a lot happening in the political domain in relation to policing while we were deliberating within the political system. Not everybody was positive about our existence. Uh, a lot of people, I think, were quite sceptical as to what we would ultimately deliver. But I think when the report did emerge, I think people were reassured that it did take a, a holistic view, that it did take a radical view, and that it at least attempted to put forward a blueprint for the transformation of policing in Ireland. And would you say that a culture was an overriding issue that this commission wanted to deal with? And whereas culture can sometimes seem like something that can't really be defined, there are actually very clear ways in which you do change a culture of an organisation such as the Garda Síochána. Well, while we were deliberating, the Policing Authority published a, a cultural audit of an Garda Síochána, which was hugely influential in our deliberations and which revealed a lot about the culture of policing in Ireland and the policing service in Ireland that was that was quite um, that was quite troubling. But it also gave us in a sense, it confirmed a lot of what we were discovering from our consultations around the country. We, we, we traveled around the country and um, we met with senior and junior members of Angarda Shikana, you know, in virtually every area. Well, in fact, in all areas that we visited, urban and rural. And we held a lot of community meetings and meetings with various stakeholders of one sort or another. And the kind of evidence, for want of a better term, that we were gathering from those encounters was very much confirmed by the culture audit done by the policing authority while we were deliberating, which was very useful and very kind of a a good complementary source. And there was really a clear sense that what mattered most to communities was guard the visibility connectedness to the policing service, knowing who the members of Angarda Siakana were, uh, having that kind of sense of of safety within a community, that mattered most to the public and it mattered most to those members of Angarda Siakana engaged in community policing. But within the policing service, it was perceived not to matter enough and that it didn't have the same cachet professionally as, say, other specialist uh, policing functions, whether those were in the area of uh, security or the kind of work done by CAB or whatever. And it was really, really clear to us that, in fact, you needed to almost invert the value system of the policing service and say that, in fact, the most important 
uh, work that police do is working with communities. So you have, you know, an accountability to communities, a degree of local oversight, a degree of responsiveness to communities, a degree of understanding about what communities' needs are. But in order to achieve that, you had to, within the value system of policing, say that that mattered, that it wasn't enough to have a kind of a tokenistic community policing presence or to treat community policing as an afterthought, that rather you had to say, you know, first and foremost, we police with communities. That is the most important thing. And the policing is all about that. And that was no difficulty within the Commission on the Future of Policing. We had no difficulty in agreeing that among ourselves. And we all came from very diverse communities. Some people didn't even come from Ireland. So we had no difficulty in agreeing that. But the hard bit is to convert that into a new value system for policing within the culture of policing and the policing service in Angarda Siakana. And human rights then, you found as the Commission should be the purpose and the foundation of policing and my sense would be that that ties in very much to that cultural shift that you're trying to achieve but human rights what really does that mean for Garthi for the people interacting with Garthi? Well when we had our conference here in April the president of the university professor Kirana Hogarthy made the comment and I thought it was a very rich comment that when Angarda Siakana were established at the start of the 20th century, it was appropriate to style them as guardians of the peace. But that now as we approach the 100th anniversary of their establishment, it's more appropriate to reconceive of policing as guardianship of human rights or that they are Garda Cartadena, which was the phrase that he that he used at the conference. And that is quite simply just a modern understanding of what a policing service should do. It isn't there simply to fight crime or to act as some kind of an aid to a prosecution service. It's there, in fact, to ensure that the rule of law and that human rights within the rule of law are observed. So it's not fixated on one perspective. Yes, victims' perspectives are critically important, but so so too must the perspective of accused persons and so too must there be regard for the perspective of accused persons. And the human rights system as as conceived in the modern world is really a system of balance, a system of compromise, a system of trade-offs. Um, and it's not much more than that. Um, we we possibly, I mean, I know, I know there are huge debates and we could go on for hours about the reach of human rights or the overreach of human rights or whatever, but, but fundamentally at, at its core, a human rights system, you know, underpinning the rule of law is about a balanced approach to these things and policing must simply reflect that. So in order to make that into something practical, when we looked at, you know, the idea of human rights being the foundation and purpose of policing, we saw something like the public sector positive duty contained in Section 42 of the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission Act as being very important, in fact, in the area of policing, that Angarda Siakana should simply work with the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, both on human rights and equality issues, uh, in order to ensure that the manner in which it conducts its business, both internally and externally, is human rights and equality compliant. Now, that is easy to say. In practice, um, it is done in a kind of a, an incremental, programmatic way, but that is already happening. And to that end, you know, the recommendation that there be a human rights strategy in Angarda Shekhan has been adopted, the recommendation that there be a, a human rights advisor has been adopted. 
and the recommendation that there be an advisory committee made up of experts and others has also been adopted. And one of, I think, the great benefits of having a commissioner now who comes from a system, Drew Harris, who comes from a system in Northern Ireland, the PSNI system, which is fully au fait with a human rights framework and operating comfortably within the human rights framework is that it doesn't need to be explained and there is no uh, unthinking resistance to that. It's simply taken on board and seen as almost a kind of an operational framework for policing. And that is as it should be. Now, that is not to say that we've reached some kind of high-minded nirvana and that we've human rights will be observed and protected at all costs. Nobody is so naive as to say that. But it's to frame the problem of policing differently. In other words, we're saying that if you put communities first and work with communities in all of their diversity and with all of their diverse needs, and that there is integrated into that operating model a respect for the balance required in the human rights approach, that both both of those elements will aid the transformation of policing and bring about, we would argue, a more effective policing model in this jurisdiction. I do agree with you that Drew Harris, when he was speaking at our conference here in NUI Galway, did demonstrate respect for a human rights-based approach. He made the point that Alison Kilpatrick, also who was former independent human rights advisor to the Policing Board of Northern Ireland, repeatedly made in her speaking that day, but also a report to your commission, that human rights can be really helpful to the police. And it can only, taking that approach only enhances uh, the way that they do their job because it makes them more comfortable in dealing with difficult situations and can show them I think he called it the light to a new pathway out of a complicated situation. But I remember him also saying, you know, steel, I think he said, steel sharpens steel. And there he was talking about the very specific powers and legislation that applied to him and to his force in Northern Ireland in terms of independent inspections of police stations, a very robust independent reviewer of terrorism legislation. And so in addition to strategies, I'm wondering how you think the progress has been in terms of new legislation, setting out powers and delineating both powers, but also people's entitlements in areas like search arrest, detention, and also in relation to issues like state security that historically have not had much accountability attaching to them. Okay, there are many elements to that question. In relation to arrest and detention and those kind of, you know, traditional areas of a coercive power, we recommended that there be a codification of the relevant law in that area and the Department of Justice and Equality are now in phase one of the implementation process working on that. To be a true codification, it will take a certain amount of time, but it is firmly on the agenda and there are people in the Department of Justice working on that right now. And that, by the way, is of huge benefit, not just to people who might be arrested or detained. It's a huge benefit to police as well, to make the point exactly made by Drew Harris, that if they can work within something like the PACE system in the UK, they will be much surer about what they're doing and it'll be much clearer whether they're operating uh, within the law. In relation to oversight more generally, 
the Commission recommended effectively the re-establishment of GSOC under a new title with significantly enhanced powers and significantly improved resources. Uh, that was really no more than repeating what GSOC itself had said in a submission to the government prior to our report coming out and we supported that wholeheartedly so we argue for the recreation of that entity as an independent ombudsman for policing with all that is required uh, for that function and in fact in order to separate trivial from serious complaints we argued very unapologetically for human rights to be the the way in which you frame the violations that would or the alleged violations that would go for deeper investigation by GSOC. In relation to oversight of security, uh, we recommended the establishment of a new security entity within the Department of Antishuk with more or less an identical oversight mechanism as exists in the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. We brought in fact David Anderson who held that post to our conference here in NUI Galway in April and that will require underpinning by legislation so they've already established the new security entity with the new director of national security the next piece is to establish an effective oversight mechanism and to establish a legislative framework for all of that that last piece is absolutely crucial because if you operate within an informal setting national new national security arrangements uh, without effective oversight that would be completely incompatible with our human rights obligations and it would be in fact a very dangerous way to proceed. So we were very very clear that that requires appropriate legislative underpinning and appropriate balance as required by the rule of law as required by, by human rights. So in those practical ways all of the, the human rights values that permeate our report you know reappear in that kind of practical uh, context some would say they go without saying you know that you don't in fact have to say that but in fact you know it is worth saying and it's worth saying for emphasis and that emphasis is very very evident I think in the detail of the report. Tonica there were some areas where Despite your recommendations in the Commission report, the government didn't undertake to implement them straight away. And one of those was the separation of the prosecution function from the Garda, Siakona. Can you tell our listeners why this recommendation was made to separate policing from prosecution? Well, we recommended that that be done because we, we, we see that it's actually really important for the quality of justice that is dispensed even at the you know the lowest level uh, in the courts in Ireland in the criminal justice system so you know the police should clearly be there as important evidence providers uh, in the context of criminal prosecutions but they shouldn't prosecute it also creates i think an unhealthy proximity with the judiciary which can you know be can can both appear and be a bad thing but also it's hugely consuming of police time and police resources so if a member of Angarda Siakana is involved say at detective level or whatever in prosecuting crimes he or she could be waiting around a courthouse for a day when they might be doing other valuable policing work he or she will have to learn how to prosecute cases and some of them are excellent at that I mean really good and would be highly regarded by members of the legal professions but that's not their job their job is, in fact, to be 
uh, to, to, to be police. So we, we took a very, wasn't a difficult uh, issue within the commission, we took a very clear view that they simply shouldn't do this and that there should be a prosecution service as exists in other jurisdictions and that prosecution service you know, of solicitors and others should carry out prosecutions on the part of the state. Uh, of course, that couldn't be implemented overnight. I mean, it's very clear that it couldn't. The resources are very uh, significant. It would involve a very fundamental reordering of how the Office of Director of Pu- Public Prosecutions works. So clearly, when the government says it, it isn't something that would be implemented immediately, one might be suspicious that it mightn't be implemented at all. But in fact, I firmly believe that that recommendation at some stage in the future will be implemented. If it's not implemented in the near future, somebody will notice that it was recommended in 2018 and that it was recommended in quite an unequivocal manner. And speaking of big structural changes, then one was announced this summer in August that there is a definite plan whether or not the resources are going to be available straight away but there is a plan to change the divisional system um, of how the different I suppose Garda divisions um, are set up around the country and there'll be a major reduction in the numbers to I suppose consolidate particularly the governance functions the aim being to have more Garda out in the community and there does seem to be some resistance to this, some suggestions that industrial relations will call a halt to the whole thing. Uh, what's your view on this recent move and do you think it is achievable? Well, I mean, the resistance is entirely predictable because whenever you introduce changes like that or propose changes like that, there's always, you know, a worry that it may lead to a diminution in importance attaching, say, to a local district or whatever and there's a certain degree of concern particularly on the part of politicians as to where the divisional headquarters will be will it move from my county or my constituency into another county or another constituency or whatever but I think it's really important to understand that what animates that proposal is in fact the very core of our report which is to improve policing with communities and to enhance the importance of policing with communities And that in order to do that, the most effective way to do that is essentially to devolve power, to decentralise power so that you're creating mini police services. We don't use the word police force, mini police services in coherent districts or coherent regions. So reducing the number of assistant commissioners, which was never, it was never clear to us why they should exist. And we're creating a new, or we recommended the creation of a new process whereby superintendents will be given rather than a geographical location to manage they will be given functions to manage so you'd have a superintendent responsibility for HR superintendent responsibility for community relations or whatever and to my mind that makes sense you know to on the industrial relations side you know some of the superintendents who will be affected by that proposal You know, it is also evident from our report and it's clear from the government's acceptance of that report that a package will be offered to those who may choose to leave rather than than to stay. It is also evident that in the creation of these new posts within within these new structures that there are promotional outlets and career outlets for members of Angarda Siakana who are there already. And that it also has to be accompanied by a real seriousness about civilianisation that you just simply cannot continue to have 
you know, so many people who were desk bound sworn officers when their tasks could just as easily be performed by civilians who are non-sworn, who may be in fact, even in some cases, better qualified to do that without diverting resources from what sworn officers exist to do, which is to police. So it's very reassuring that the commissioner has taken that recommendation, has fleshed it out and has come up with something serious and radical to restructure how policing is done in this part of the island of Ireland. It is absolutely inevitable that there will be some disquiet about that. And I think the key task for him now, and indeed for the political system, is to address concerns because, you know, all concerns have a degree of legitimacy, even if they're not ultimately solid concerns. And then to see with the cooperation of all of the various stakeholders, can people move on and implement this plan without compromising its 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 core integrity? And the guard, the representative bodies, you know, the both the AGSI, the Superintendents Association and the GRA, they really have to, you know, look at this quite carefully, that a lot of what we proposed in our report was based on very serious and open conversations with their members. It wasn't a mediated conversation, it was direct conversation between commission members and members of Ngar the Shiakana. And a lot of what we recommended is in fact strongly supported by their members, by members of the policing service. And rather than just take a siloed vested interest and try and 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 in a sense block change through that mechanism I think it really behoves the the representative bodies to stand back and look in fact at the the greater good look in fact at what is really sought to be achieved here which may in fact be in the interests of their members as much as in the wider community interest and they're doing their job when they raise legitimate questions when something is proposed they're doing no more than their job when they say that but when the discussion deepens and when the discussion goes on, I think there needs to be a very constructive engagement on this question, because if the commissioner didn't run with this, if the commissioner didn't really try to drive this particular change, then really there would be no evidence of seriousness about the implementation of the commission's report. And this, to me, is the most um, important move that has in fact occurred since our report was published. I'd like to finish now by asking you, I suppose as a human rights lawyer, stepping back a bit from the Commission about an issue that's very much related to the Commission's recommendations and its assessment of the importance of human rights in the policing arena, but it falls outside the recommendations that you made, and that is about access to justice in the courts. So, of course, um, GSOC is a very important complaints mechanism, and that is no doubt the appropriate place for the vast majority of complaints about um, behaviour by members of Angarda Shiakana when there is uh, grounds to complain. But sometimes people may have um, serious grievances that they have a right to air before the courts. They may want to claim constitutional rights violations. They may want to claim violations of their rights under the European Convention on Human Rights as it's incorporated directly into Irish law. 
you were a member of the Legal Aid Board at one point, and I want to ask you your views on whether we have sufficient access to justice in the courts in Ireland for human rights violations or whether there's a need to look at the provision of legal aid in the area of policing. Well, I mean, speaking in a strictly personal capacity, without any reference to my previous membership of the Legal Aid Board or the Law Reform Commission currently, or the Commission on the Future of Policing, you know, it's, it's, it's abundantly clear to me that statutory provision as it operates in Ireland for civil legal aid is not compatible with our European law obligations. We need to do something about that. Uh, that requires a significant reordering of how we resource civil legal aid uh, in this country. I mean, if it wasn't for the invaluable work done by FLAC and other community law centres, there would be a, a very yawning gap in the area of public interest litigation in this country. Uh, you know, pragmatic strategies like introducing protective costs orders or cost protection orders is currently on the agenda of the Law Reform Commission and in its fifth programme of Law Reform there will be a report on that issue specifically. Some progress has been made in that regard by individual judges like the former judge Jared Hogan in particularly in relation to cases say like Schrems and and there's already you know some good stuff happening in the area of environmental law but that only is the tip of the iceberg so yeah there's undoubtedly a need to target legal aid in areas where it is needed uh, particularly in that public interest area but of course it's never going to compete well with other demands uh, within the system because well there's no need to explain the political reasons why it doesn't compete well but there's also I think a, an issue about the degree to which we disproportionately focus on family law and the provision of civil legal aid by the state when so much of that could be dealt with by other mechanisms like mediation although there's plenty happening in that space as well and the need to work on on other areas of crucial importance housing uh, debt all, all sorts of other areas that that, that require to be addressed um, but that is entirely, I think, separate from from the question of 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 the Commission, the future of policing, and in relation to what we have proposed in that area for complaints and oversight, I think it is quite important that if the the, the changes proposed for GSOC are implemented, a lot of that formality will in fact be avoided. I mean, there is a very strong desire, or there was a very strong desire on our part, to you know, turn what are really management issues into management issues and to separate them out from discipline, to separate them out from alleged human rights violations and not to have a body like the Independent Office of Police Ombudsman dealing with with everything. And the other, I suppose, element to that is that the other part of external oversight conducted by the policing authority and soon to be conducted by the new entity that will amalgamate the Policing Authority and the Inspectorate of Angarda Siakon and the Policing and Community Safety Oversight Commission or whatever it's ultimately called and I think it needs a simpler title uh, that that degree of systemic oversight will also function separate and distinct from independent complaints and that through that combination you should be able to get that more effective uh, external oversight of what's happening on the policing side uh, in relation to the separate matter of constitutional challenge or legal challenge other than you know through the criminal legal aid system that is a completely separate question but one on which personally I think we have a long way to go to become compliant with our European obligations and indeed other obligations arising from international human rights law.
Thank you so much, Donica, for your time today. It's been really informative um, and thought provoking to hear your thoughts on our process of police reform in Ireland and the human rights basis for it. I do hope that policing will be an issue that we return to during the course of our new podcast from the Irish Centre for Human Rights. And until the next time, thank you very much for listening.